There was an announcement this morning, Vince, that um, that you could have made. My uh, sources tell me that the college and career toasted the high school uh, yesterday afternoon. Is that true? Amen. Amen. Bad news if you're in high school, but pretty good if you're in college, huh? We like those friendly little rivalries. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, page 1125, if you're using a pew Bible. Let me begin with you uh, this morning by just asking you a couple of questions. Think about In your Bible, if you, uh, not all Bibles are this way, but many of them, you perhaps have the words of Christ in red in your Bible, go through the Gospels and big portions of big swaths of the Gospels in red ink. Let me ask you a question. Are the words in red more authoritative than those in black? Are the words of Jesus Christ more authoritative than the words of Paul or Peter or John. I'm going to ask you another question. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his title for himself. Did Paul invent Christianity? Did the apostle Paul invent it out of the raw materials of Judaism? We've got people shaking their heads and wondering, where am I going with this? I am not affirming either of those questions, so let me make that plain for you. Although there are many out there in the realms of New Testament scholarship, so-called, that would affirm such statements. What I want to look at with you this morning is the Gospel itself, as Paul begins to unfold it here for us in the very early verses of this letter. Last time, we only managed to look at a few words here in verse 1, right? Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. We noted that he was introducing himself here to this group of believers in Rome, this series of house churches. We don't know how many house churches there were, but there were certainly many. And they were comprised of Jewish and Gentile believers. We noted all of this for you last time. And there, as Paul introduced himself at the beginning of verse 1, he called himself a doulos, a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus. And we elaborated at length on the meaning of that terminology. We noted as well last time that we believe that Paul used this terminology to refer to himself at the very beginning of this letter because he wanted to affirm to these, these believers, these followers of Jesus Christ, that he too understood what it meant to be committed to Christ and he was a true follower of the crucified Messiah himself. And so from that general statement of his commitment to Jesus Christ, he moves here in the rest of verse 1 with further titles of introduction. This is all introducing himself to a church, to a series of churches that he has never visited before. He's never met these people before, but he is, he is intending by God's grace to meet them soon. As he says in chapter 15, you know, I want to come and spend some time there with you on my way to Spain. And, and by the way, I'd like to get some money while I'm there. That's not exactly how he said it, but he did say it pretty much that directly. 
So he's introducing himself to these believers. And it's important that he establishes credibility right on the front side of his introduction. And that's what he does. So he begins talking about his status as a follower of the risen Messiah, the crucified one, the Christ Jesus, in verse 1. And then he goes on and he talks about himself as called as an apostle. Do you see that? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? Well, in its most general sense, the word means messenger. A messenger. Someone who delivers a message for another person. That is an apostle. And it is used that way in the New Testament. However, its more typical use within the New Testament refers to a special kind of messenger. That is, an accredited missionary commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim His message and carry on His ministry of reconciliation. That is what we normally think of as an apostle, and that is how it is most frequently used in the New Testament. A special class of men commissioned by Christ Himself to carry a message and to carry on a ministry that Jesus had begun and established. That makes them irreplaceable. In fact, over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul writing there to the church at Ephesus says that they are foundational to the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself is the chief cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation of the church. How many times is a foundation laid? Once. And when it is done, they pass from the scene. And that is huge, by the way, for your understanding of the New Testament. If you don't get that one fact, then you will misunderstand the New Testament. These are very significant men who have been given an extremely significant job or role to play in the establishment of God's plan and purpose for the ages. And when these men pass from the scene, their work is done, never to be repeated again. So the Apostle Paul is taking to himself, or Paul here, is taking to himself in verse 1 a very lofty title. It's a huge thing for him to refer to himself as an apostle. And notice how he does it. He says, called as an apostle. Do you see that? Paul called as an apostle. The verbal adjective here, kletos, or called, is a theologically rich word. It is a very rich term, and it speaks of frequently God's initiative in salvation. In fact, it's used that way here in the text down in verse 6, you'll see. He says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. It's used the same way in verse 8. And then one that is just near and dear to our hearts over in chapter 8 and verse 28. He says there that we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are what? Called according to His purpose. So, kletos, this word, speaks of the divine initiative in salvation. That is a frequent way it is used. But the thought that Paul is expressing here in verse 1, where he says, called as an apostle, is more than just the idea that he is a Christian apostle. He is actually speaking here about his Appointment to the office of apostle as being something that has come by divine initiative. That's what his point is. It is not some human self-appointment. It is not a group of men got together and elected him and said, you know what, we need one more. How about this guy? 
Or he's not saying, you know what, I think I'd like to be an apostle. All right, that's it. Get my business cards printed up. I'm now an apostle. He's saying, no, my apostleship comes to me by the call of God. It is divine initiative that has set me forth as an apostle. Over in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, where his apostolic credentials are being severely questioned, in verse 1 there, he speaks of it as well. And he says, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So there in Galatians, he starts out in the same kind of way he's beginning here in Romans by establishing the fact that he is indeed a true apostle, one of the foundation stones of the church. And he got that way by God's divine initiative. He didn't go looking for it. God came looking for him. I mean, think about his life. This is a guy who was a former persecutor of the church, right? He is one who killed Christians. Beyond that, he's one who does not meet the conditions of an apostle that are laid out in Acts chapter 1, verses 21-22. And it's worth turning back there, so go to your left to Acts 1 and just be reminded so that you, you get a sense of, of, uh, of the tension here that must be Resolved at the beginning of the letter to the Romans. There in Acts chapter 1 verse 21, of course, Judas went out and hanged himself. And so they are one shy. There's only 11 now and, and, uh, and they want to add one to the band. So there's 12 again. It says verse 21, it is therefore necessary that there and they're laying out the, uh, the ground rules of how they who qualifies to be this 12th one. Says it is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. That is that in order to qualify, you had to have been with the apostolic band or the, or the inner group of disciples from the beginning, from the baptism of John all the way through and a witness to the resurrection. Those were the requirements. And the Apostle Paul does not meet these requirements. He was not there at the baptism of John. He was not a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ along with them there in the upper room. So, he doesn't make the grade, at least on this test. And therefore, he has to defend his right to this office. And throughout his whole ministry career, it is constantly like a shadow hanging over his head. People saying, you are illegitimate. You are not a true apostle. You do not speak for God. And so he has to defend it. And he, and he does it in the most vehement ways. He asserts his authority. His is equal to theirs, he says. And it's equal because of a few reasons. And he gives them. You can just jot these down. This is all introduction, by the way. You can jot all this down. He says, my authority is equal to, even though I am the least of the apostles, my authority is equal to theirs because I have seen the resurrected Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.1 He's very, very vehement about that fact. I have seen the resurrected Christ. They've seen Him, so have I. 1 Corinthians 9.1 He has also, he said, received His commission directly from Christ. That's huge. Galatians 1.1, I just read that for you. Acts 26, 15-18, he says it again. The Lord spoke to him and said, I am setting you apart to send you to the Gentiles. His commission for ministry has come directly from the mouth of the resurrected Lord Himself. 
Okay, not through the agency of man, not from some committee, not by a self-appointment, but Christ spoke directly to me and said, go to the Gentiles. Third reason why he is so adamant that he is an apostle is that he has had his labors, his ministry efforts confirmed by the miraculous signs of an apostle, just like everybody else. Second Corinthians 12, 12. Okay? The signs of an apostle, he said, were performed by me. That's huge. By the way, that's huge for this whole issue that swirls around the church today about the miraculous. The apostle Paul says that the miraculous are the, 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 uh, the signs that give credibility to the ministry that he has performed. They are apostolic credentials, and I have them. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12. So, back to Romans 1. What's the point? The point is, is that even though Paul has not been instrumental in the founding of the churches at Rome, he said he had nothing to do with their founding, okay? They were founded, we believe, because of the, of the massive outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 2 at Pentecost, where there were people who lived in Rome who got saved, went back to Rome and began churches. Paul has nothing to do in the sense of founding these churches, yet he is still now writing to them and he, and he wants to write to them and, and write in an authoritative way. He wants to speak to these people and teach them doctrine. He wants authority over them. And that only comes because he is in a called an apostle. A called apostle of God. Therefore, his words bear the authority of God Himself. Okay, that's his point. My words bear the authority of God himself. But he's not satisfied. He adds a third phrase here. Do you see it in verse 1? There's a third criteria or credential. That's probably a better way to say it. A third credential that he lays out at the very beginning of his letter to these people. So they'll listen to him. Not only is he called an apostle, he says, but he is set apart for the gospel of God. That is that God has set apart set him apart or consecrated him to a particular task. And in the Greek, it is a perfect passive participle, meaning that he has been set apart. That would be a more literal translation. Okay? Or having been set apart. It's something that occurred in the past that sets him apart for this task. Now, standing behind this statement, I think, without any doubt in my mind at least, are the words of God to the prophet Jeremiah. I think they are rolling through Paul's minds here. Listen, remember, Jeremiah 1.5, where God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you or set you apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1.5. I think Paul has that same kind of conception of who he is and the role to which he's been called. He is called to be a spokesman for God, an apostle for God, and it is something that God did a long time ago. It wasn't a recent occurrence. It was God had established this as the way it was going to be from a very long time ago. Let me think about it for a minute. Paul, the most fastidious Jew imaginable, right? Later in, I believe it's Philippians, he says, as to the keeping of the law, right, found perfect. Here is a man who kept the minutiae. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. The minutiae of the law down to the minutest detail, I kept it all. 
Talk about zeal. You talk about somebody who hated the new upstart sect called the Way, right? I was in the forefront. I'm, I'm watching over the cloaks of the guys who were stoning them. I hated this thing. I was sold out to rabbinic Judaism. I was a legalist among legalists. Nobody excelled in terms of making themselves self-righteous before God, of purchasing their own way into God's favor. I was the best at it. And when it came to the Gentiles, I hated them more than anyone else hated them. But something happened in my life. Right? The who was the consummate legalist now becomes the preacher of the doctrines of grace. What an incredible transformation has occurred in this man's life. The one who hates the Gentiles is now the one sent to reach the Gentiles for God. To bring fulfillment of the old and ancient promises that God would reach to the Gentile nations. This man was a perfect candidate for the role, although looking at him on the outside, you would say, no way. If anyone was going to believe, it would never be him. And if anyone would go to the Gentiles, it would certainly not be him. But God had set him apart for this role from time before. Paul's function is to serve Christ by his authoritative and normative preaching of the gospel. That is his role. He preaches it with authority. And what he says is normative. That means that it, is, that it becomes the measuring rod against which all other gospel truth is measured. Gospel, by the way, we probably ought to just establish this on the front, means good news. Okay? It just means good news. He is the one who will tell you what the good news is. Because he speaks for God. His role is not to simply pass on what he has heard from other people, but it is to give it voice, to give it shape. Again, verse 1, the Gospel of God. Literally, God's Gospel. But the interesting thing is, uh, if you flip over to chapter 2, verse 16, you notice the Apostle Paul there says that it is his Gospel. He says, on the day when according to my Gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, it's my gospel. It's my gospel. It's my good news. I am going to tell you what the good news is, and it's, and it's my expression of it. How can I do How can I speak for God like that? How can I bind God, if you will, like that? It is because I speak with the voice of God in these matters. I am a called apostle set apart, or having been set apart, for this message of good news. I mean, think with me on this epistle. <coughs> I gave you a, an outline a couple of weeks ago. put it for you in the bulletin. We're going to have it there every week until you memorize it. At some point, we'll take a quiz here and we'll hand out gold stars for those that can get it. All right? We said the Apostle Paul gave shape and voice to the Gospel. <coughs> His Gospel begins with condemnation. Isn't that right? And it's heavy condemnation. There is no heavier condemnation to be found in the New Testament. I can hardly wait until the opportunity to preach this, right? When week after week after week you're going to come in here and all we're going to do is get beat up together. Okay? It's going to be so edifying. I don't know exactly, Ron, how we're going to handle this. Okay? But I think it's critical. 
I think it's critical that we let the Spirit of God use the Word of God to reveal our hearts for what they really are. We are miserable, wicked sinners. And the Apostle Paul will spare no ink and paper to make that clear. Condemnation is his gospel because it is God's gospel. After condemnation comes, that's right, justification. If it didn't, what would come after it is hell, okay? So you can have it your way. It's condemnation. It is justification that comes next in this book of Romans. What follows justification? Sanctification. That's it. Being set apart to God in Christ. Following sanctification? Restoration. What about Israel? What is going to happen with Israel? And following restoration comes transformation. How are we now to live? Okay, that is Paul's Gospel. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 16. But he says again, I believe it's in chapter 15, he calls it his Gospel. And it is his Gospel that is God's Gospel. So, as we examine here now, now we're going to get to the, to the message. That was all introduction, okay? As we begin to examine verses 1 through 6, starting this morning, there are six fundamental truths about that Gospel that we must understand so that we may fulfill the purpose for which we have been saved. In the first six verses, Paul is going to give you encapsulated form the book of Romans. And he's going to do it in short statements. And we'll just pick those up and kind of like a diamond, turn them around a little and take a good look at them. All right? Six fundamental truths about the gospel we must understand so that we will fulfill the purpose for which we have been saved. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We have been saved for a purpose, the purpose, the proclamation of Paul's gospel. The gospel that is God's gospel. All right? So, first fundamental truth here is that the source of Paul's gospel is God. All right? 1C, the end of verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. That is God's gospel. Paul's going to make some very, very strong statements here in this book. And it is critical for the reader of this book to understand that the statements he makes, he makes on, on behalf of God. They are the very voice of God speaking to us. So what he tells us here is what God wants us to know. It is God's gospel. Later he'll say in uh, verse 16, he'll call this gospel the power of God or the power from God. Verse 17, chapter 1, he'll say it reveals the righteousness of God. Chapter 6, verse 23, he'll call it the free gift of God. The gospel is God's gospel. The source of it is God Himself. The source of the gospel is God Himself. To the Thessalonians, the, um, Paul wrote earlier, much earlier, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, a very interesting statement to them. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When you receive from Paul what he has to say, you are receiving it from the very mouth of God. Okay? Now that may seem like a very simple and a very obvious point. And indeed, it is simple and it should be obvious. The source of the gospel is God, not men. But the implications of that very simple and obvious statement are huge. They are huge. 
As I said, in the next three chapters here, Paul is going to develop the, the um, doctrine of the depravity of man. He is going to hammer away that we are totally, fully, completely, hopelessly lost in sin. That it affects every single aspect of our being, our emotions, our mind, our soul, our body. Every bit of us in its totality is infected with this deadly disease called sin. There is no escaping it. You are born with it and you pass it on. And it is with you all of your human existence here on this earth. It is not just a mild sickness. It's not a case of the flu. It's not a case of some even serious disease. It is a death-dealing disease. And it leaves us without hope. There is absolutely no hope for any of us but in Christ alone. And until we understand that fact, Christ will mean nothing to us. The extent of our love for Jesus Christ, the ability, our, our willingness to respond to His love is in direct relationship to our understanding of our own desperate situation. If you are merely sick, if you are merely wounded, and you only need a little help to get back on your feet, then you have missed Christianity. The doctrine of Christianity it relies in its bedrock on the doctrine of the depravity of man. And so Paul will labor away chapter 1, chapter 2, most of chapter 3, and he will bring all the world under condemnation, under indictment. He will call them to the bar of justice. The wildest pagan you've ever seen who lives a life of debauchery all the way up to the most fastidious law-keeping Jew and everyone in between. And he will say, you all stand condemned before God. How can you make that kind of a statement? The man who does the, the good and benevolent deeds, right? The one who wins the Nobel Prize to the, to the mugger that will knock you over the head and kill you for ten bucks. You all stand condemned. What is the source of that kind of good news? It's got to be from God Himself. It can only be from God Himself who could make that kind of an indictment. You know, all the other religions of the world, when you boil them down, are nothing but man reaching for God. Some are more sophisticated than others. Some will engage the mind in more intricate philosophical systems than others. But it always... And, and inevitably is man's reach for God. All but the truth, which is Christianity's reach of God to man. It is God's reach to man. 2 Corinthians 5.19, right? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was active reconciling us to Him because we had no interest in Him. None. The Gospel is God's idea. It is not man's. Therefore, what we have to tell people is not subject to the changing whims of culture. It is not something that is subject to revision. It is a fixed and non-negotiable message. And none of us have any authority to change it at all. None. This is God's Gospel. 
Let me tell you, folks, and here's where the rub comes. The rub comes because people don't want to hear it. They do not want to hear how bad off they really are. You don't like it either. The most difficult part of the Gospel for the unbeliever to accept is the level of their depravity and their need for a Savior. The hardest thing for you to accept as a follower of Jesus Christ is the level of your depravity and your need for a Savior. It goes against everything that you are. You do not think you're that bad. There's lots of people worse than me, right? We go door to door. We've knocked on 10,000 doors. The number one reason, according to Jim tells me if I get this right, right, that people say that someone goes to hell is they commit murder. And then they'll say, I've never murdered anyone. It's always somebody else that's more wicked than me. Beloved, we are wicked. There is no end to our wickedness. And until we understand that this is God's message to us, we're not going to be willing to come to grips with that. We're going to want to soften it somehow. We're going to want to chip off the hard edges. We're going to want to file it down to make it more acceptable. We're going to want to dip it in chocolate so it goes down easier. But the truth of the matter is is that we need to have our self-righteousness ripped off. Our hearts laid bare and exposed for who we really are. The source of Paul's Gospel is God. Second, the substantiation of Paul's Gospel is Scripture. Verse 2, the substantiation of Paul's Gospel is Scripture. The Gospel of God or God's Gospel which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul not only claims that his Gospel comes to him directly from God, he substantiates that claim by appealing to the Old Testament. You see how he builds his case to them here. Remember, he's introducing himself to these people. He's never met them before. He's about to tell them some, uh, some things that are very difficult and hard to receive. And so what he says is he makes the claim of who he is, right? A called apostle set apart by God. And then he substantiates his claim and by saying is that what I tell you is what you will find in your Bible. Right? Be a good Berean and search the Scriptures and see if these things be not so. He appeals to the Old Testament. Throughout his letter, he will be making repeated appeals to the Old Testament. His use of the Old Testament in the, in the Epistle of the Romans here is huge. According to one commentator, I didn't bother to count these up, but he says there are 61 direct quotations from the Old Testament in 16 chapters. 61 times he directly quotes from the Old Testament and many, many more times that he alludes to its history, to its type, to its doctrine, and to many other things. The letter to the Romans is absolutely steeped in the Old Testament. Steeped in the Old Testament. For example, just look over at verse 17. Talking about the Gospel here. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 3. What does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. All the way over to chapter 10, verse 13. These are just a few small samples. 
Right? Romans 10, verse 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Okay? It is rooted in the Old Testament, and that's huge. That is huge. Paul is declaring to these believers and to us this morning that there is an essential unity between his message and the message that has been given long ago through the prophets of God. You know, in the afternoon when Jesus was resurrected, he went for a stroll. While he was out for a walk, he met up with a couple of disciples who were also out for a walk. And they were on their way to, down to Emmaus, right? you remember this? And Jesus fell in among them and they began to walk together. And as they were on that road to Emmaus, they began to talk and Jesus gave them the Bible study to end all Bible studies. Right? Luke chapter 24, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Man, would I have loved to have been there. Right? To have the very Son of God open the Scriptures beginning in Genesis and to take me through it and show me Himself in every single book. Wow. It is rooted in the Scripture. Paul's Gospel, God's Gospel, the true Gospel is rooted in the Scriptures. Therefore, Therefore, if you do not know the Scripture, or unless you know the Scriptures, you will not understand the Gospel. There is no Gospel outside of the Scriptures. It is the means of communicating the very Gospel itself. So, we cannot adopt a minimalist approach to the Gospel. Okay? We cannot adopt a minimalist approach. Like we're trying to sell some kind of a product that has an obvious flaw in it that a buyer will not be interested in if they were to see it. So let's just leave that part off. Since my father-in-law told me this in a public setting, I think I can pass it on. I, I hadn't met him that long either. And uh, he was telling me about his younger days. And... Uh, he had this old car that was a junker. And he needed to get rid of it. He had been married and had a couple of kids. And he needed to get a new car. The problem was with this car is that it was very, very difficult to start. So he took it to the car dealership and he left it running. Okay? Well, he went in to make a deal about trading it on a new car. Okay? Because he was deathly afraid that if he turned it off and the guy went out to start it up, and it wouldn't go and he wouldn't get much money for it. So he left it running. Now, I don't know whether the used car salesman was uh, taken in by such a trick or not. I don't know. But there is a sense in which within evangelicalism today, we want to kind of leave the car running. That is, we want to sort of conceal the hard part of the Gospel. Let's just give them the good news. Jesus loves you. Right? Or God loves you. Jesus died for you. You know, won't you receive Him now? That is not the Gospel. Okay, and we've got to avoid that minimalistic kind of approach. We need to declare the full counsel of God. The message of the gospel is woven into the pages of the Holy Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Our question should not be how much do I need to tell them in order for them to believe? 
But have I fully and faithfully declared and explained God's eternal plan of redemption? That is a completely different way of looking at an evangelistic encounter. Not what is the minimum amount I can communicate before I ask them to trust Christ. But have I declared to them the full counsel of God? Have I completely and thoroughly explained to them God's eternal plan of redemption? Part of our problem is is that we're afraid if we give them all the bad news before we give them the good news, they won't buy. So let's just skip to the good news. Well, if the Gospel is most fully contained in our doctrinal point of view in the book of Romans, that's not Paul's technique. Three chapters of bad news before you get any relief. There's another implication that comes from this, by the way. Verse 2, that which was promised beforehand in the prophets. The Holy Scriptures are promised through His prophets rather in the Holy Scripture. And that is this notion that is prevalent today that we must avoid difficult theological language and concepts when we explain the Gospel. Otherwise, the average person just can't understand it and won't believe it. Think with me on this now. If that line of reasoning is true, then we must conclude one of two things. Either first, that the the, uh, readers of the first century were far more intelligent than we are. Far more able to understand things than we can. Us moderns with our college degrees. Because Paul doesn't avoid the difficult theological terms here. He talks about propitiation. He talks about atonement. And he doesn't bother to chew it up and spit it into their hungry little mouths. He just gives it to them as a big fat steak to chew on. So either they were a lot more intelligent than you and I are, or they didn't understand what he was talking about. He wrote to them and they, you know, they read it in church and they hadn't the thought, what did that guy say? Now, Peter tells us over in 2 Peter, right, that there are things Paul says that are difficult to understand. And so he does write at a lofty level. There's no question about that. But I'm not content to believe that whatever he wrote went over everybody's head. Paul builds his case here for the justification by faith like like a skillful attorney. He marshals his evidence. He draws largely upon the Old Testament text and then by logical deduction, He demonstrates His Gospel's correspondence and fulfillment of that Old Testament message. He builds an iron cloud. This is Perry Mason at work. Okay, When he is done, you you, you roll over, Uncle, I did it! You know. Paul assumes his readers have a solid understanding of the Old Testament. 61 times he quotes it directly. Many more times he alludes to it. He expects them to know what he is talking about. And if they don't, I think his expectation is that they will get out the ancient scrolls, open it up, read it, and see that these things are true. That fact stands out, by the way, in even sharper contrast when you consider the wide availability of the Old Testament that you and I have compared to those of the first century, right? Right? They were on scrolls, and it's not that they weren't in everybody's home. A synagogue would be fortunate to have a full set of scrolls. Most would not. And certainly these little house churches are not going to have Bibles sitting on their shelves. 
Okay? He has an expectation here that I think is in very sharp contrast to where we are today. And that is that people should know and understand what I'm talking about. And if they don't know and understand it, they better look it up. Alright, here's where I go from preaching to meddling. Are you ready? I suspect the issue is not the difficulty of the gospel message today. I suspect the uh, problem is the laziness of the modern hearer. I think it is that we have raised a generation of mental cripples. People who find it difficult to think seriously about anything. If your most difficult task of your day is changing the batteries in your TV remote, okay, you are not ready for the meat. Gentlemen, it's incumbent on us to train ourselves to be ready for the meat. And the only way you're going to do that is if you train yourself to read. Let me just say it that way. If you do not read anything throughout the week more serious than the sports page, the L.A. Times, or maybe Newsweek or something that might roll across your desk, check your stock portfolio, and if that's it, if that's the most serious thing you have contemplated throughout your week, you are crippling yourself vis-a-vis the Gospel. God could have given the Gospel in any medium He chose. But the medium He chose was a book. He reduced it to writing in a book. That is, way, by the way, why Christianity has always been at the forefront of education. That is why you go back in this country, for example, and you look at the origin of your major universities and colleges and you will find a Christian origin to them. Now, they're not Christian today. But their origin lies within the faith because the people of God know that if you do not, under, if you can't read and you cannot work with the major truths of the Scriptures, then you are stunted in your faith. So guys, we've got to get with it. Right? Bodily exercise, profiteth. It's one of my favorites. Come on, fill it in. Profiteth. Little. Little. But in godliness there is great gain. Okay? You have got to train your brain to be able to go through and wrestle with the great truths. Okay? gospel is an amazing thing. It's simple and profound. It's simple enough for a young child to be able to get their arms around in childlike faith, right? Yet profound enough for the most intellectually rigorous mind to engage with. Last week, we spent uh, six days over at the Master's Seminary taking a, a class, uh, you know, a semester-long class crammed into six days. Studying selected writings of Jonathan Edwards, the greatest thinker America has probably ever produced. Man, that guy thought at deep levels. I'm just a midget. You know, they're talking about stuff, and I'm I'm trying to grab it as it's going by. But you know what? It's worth it when you grab a hold of one. Really hang on.
as we begin this journey together in this book, we need to grab on. We need to hang on for the ride. I will do my best to make things that are obscure, plain, at least if I can. But there's an expectation on your part too. The expectation on your part is that you will do the hard work too. So this might transform your soul. I'm not going to go to the third one that's on your handout today. There's just not enough time to develop that properly. So we will save that for next time. Soon we will baptize someone here. I think they're getting ready now. As a public testimony of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So wonderful. You like drama? This is drama. Okay? This is Foothills Drama Ministry. Okay? And act it out right in front of you because this is a God-given drama. This is a God-approved drama. And in the waters of baptism, someone will display the great work of redemption in their lives. Let me pray. Well, our Father, we're still getting started here on this book. These are just really preliminary things. Yet they are not to be easily passed over or quickly flown by. Because there's a lot of substance even here. We pray that You would work in our hearts to help us to believe what we learn with our minds. Lord, I pray that You would work in all of our hearts that the truth of this great epistle would not reside just between our ears, but that it would migrate the 18 inches down to our hearts and would affect our wills and indeed how we live our lives. We want You to be glorified in us, Lord, and we know that's the reason You created us. It's the longings of our heart. But we know we can't do it unless You do something mighty. So we beseech You now. Work in us. Change the way we think about things. Deliver us from those nagging sin that continues to hound us. Give us some victory, Lord, we pray for Your name's sake. And fill us with a passion for Your glory that would cause us to speak boldly of it to all whom we would meet. Do Your work in Your people, Father. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.